Welcome back to Humans of Grad School, the podcast about humans who happen to go to grad school. Being a grad student can often become a large part of our identity, but it's not the only part. This podcast aims to share the stories of the humans behind the research. Hi, everyone. Happy 2021. Um, I hope you were able to take the last couple of weeks to rest and recharge and do what makes you happy or maybe bring you a little bit of peace. Um, I know for me that meant taking a very long and extended break from doing my work, which for me is very difficult to do, but it was also pretty necessary because by the end of the uh, term, I was feeling pretty burnt out. And so over the break, I slept in, which meant sleeping until 8.30 a.m. instead of around 7 or 7.30 a.m., which is an accomplishment for me, Um, as well as playing video games 24-7. I am now obsessed with Super Mario Galaxy, which I had never played before, and I'm currently playing it on my Switch, and it is such a fun game. Um, So that's my current obsession. But anyways, Now that we are back, I'm really excited to bring you more stories, and as this year ramps up and as I bring you more episodes, I'm planning on bringing you episodes not only of people that are currently in grad school and figuring out who they are and what they're doing in grad school, but also people who maybe grad school is a very long and distant memory from here, or people who are contemplating whether or not to go to grad school. Um, I'm hoping to bring forward stories of people where Grad school may have been a part of their life or may be a part of their life at some point. And maybe also bring you a couple little extra goodies here and there for different episodes, but I'm not going to spoil too much. I have a couple ideas brewing. We'll see how they come out um, and we'll go from there. So no spoilers. Um, But without further ado, really, I'm not going to spend too much more time talking. I'm very excited to bring you this episode. It was quite captivating to me. Hopefully you find it just as captivating and interesting as I do. So um, yeah, happy 2021, everyone. And without further ado, let's get to this episode. Today's guest is Jeremy, storyteller and story reader, pivoting self-discoverer and wrestler of the gray. Let's hear his story. Well, the question of fun fact about myself and what I wanted to be when I when I grew up or as I'm growing up, uh, actually are one and the same in that when I was younger, I really wanted to be a professional wrestler, which is something that as soon as I say that to most people, uh, you know, raises a lot of eyebrows and there are a lot of questions that follow. Um, But the base point is I grew up with an older brother and family members who were big into wrestling at the time. So uh, for me, that was the, you know, late eighties, early nineties. And so I grew up just watching it uh, every week uh, with with them. It was kind of a you know tradition. I just took to it. All my friends through high school were big wrestling fans, and it was my life. Um, I loved it so much. And I was not a very studious person um, 
to say the least. Uh, I have an older sister and older brother, and they both very much had their own, you know, positive attributes growing up. My brother was the athletic person in the family, um, who was captain of the football team, uh, that sort of um, stereotype, so to speak. Uh, and my sister was also athletic. She played volleyball, but she was very much the intellectual child, um, did super well and amazing in, in all through uh, school, public and high school. And uh, and myself, I very much fell in that average middle between the two of them. Um, I was somewhat athletic in certain areas and not so much others. Uh, I was okay in some classes, not so much others. But my passion was wrestling. And so I, uh, I've told my parents upon, you know, going into grade 12 that when I was finished high school, I was going to train to be a professional wrestler. Um, and I, I can't help but say that they were, you know, both incredibly supportive uh, and I can say a lot of parents may not have been at that moment, but I, I decided that I didn't want to go to university. Um, it wasn't for me uh, and that I wanted to go trained for that. So I did for a year after graduation. Uh, me and two other friends, we found a school in Toronto. So I grew up just a little north of Toronto in uh, Barrie, Ontario. And, um, and yeah, we trained as professional wrestlers for a year. I got to meet a bunch of people I grew up watching on TV. It was one of the coolest experiences of my life. And then uh, um, I, you know, I, over the course of that year, I started to realize that um, my passion and love for it was more than I was willing to actually put into doing this for the rest of my life. Uh, and it was something that I was like, oh, this is just something that I enjoy. It's not something that I actually want to do. So um, I gave it a full year because I wanted to do diligence and uh, do it justice, I should say, and uh, which was a lot of fun. But then I had to make that ever crucial decision of um, what to do next with my life. So I am no stranger to pivoting. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I have like, a, oh my God, I have a million questions. So I also grew up watching professional wrestling because I have an older brother that is very much so still obsessed with it. So I think I know a little bit more than the average person about professional wrestling. But I don't, I remember knowing a kid in my class in grade eight wanted to be a professional wrestler. And I remember we had a career day at school. And in that career day, you had to say what you wanted to be, but you also had to say, what you needed to do in order to become a person working in that career. And the guy that said he wanted to go be a professional wrestler said that in order to be a professional wrestler, you have to go to clown school. Is that what you did for that year? That's not what you did for that year. That is not exactly how I would film <laughs> it, but it's not entirely off the mark. Okay. Uh, the funny part about that is when I was in grade eight, um, I remember in public school having to do speeches every year. Um, and so you would do speeches in your class. And then if you were selected, you might go to what we call the gym, which is if you got to the next level um, for like senior or uh, intermediate, you would deliver speeches to the school. And then if you won that, you would go compete against other schools. And so in grade eight, I did my speech on wrestling. And obviously the natural kind of passion for that kind of came through. I did really well. I won our school. I got to go on to like regionals. Um, but one of the things I talked about in that element of I was trying to break down just the whole performance part of wrestling. And I think that's where the clown school part of it is, is because so much of it is theatrical. Uh, so when I inevitably went to the training program, um, it's no different than you signing up to say, um, take kickboxing lessons or to take dance lessons or anything of that nature. It's just, um, you know, unique to wrestling physicality. So a lot of it was about 
you know, physical conditioning because you have to be in a particular type of shape to do that type of work. Um, and then other part of it was about the theatrics and it was about learning how to tap into whatever charisma you may have or whatever ideas about character you might have. Wrestling is telling a story. Um, and there are good guys and bad guys. And for those who knows what, what uh, watching wrestling on a weekly um, basis may be, it is very much like a physical soap opera. There is so much unbelievable drama, it would give Grey's Anatomy a run for its money. Um, and I think that's the thing that sometimes gets missed. And I remember going through, uh, you know, high school especially, where or people who knew me knew it was a big thing for me. And, you know, my grade 12 yearbook, all of the comments are like, best of luck in wrestling school. Can't wait to see you on TV. Like everyone knew me as that person, but I also hear it from everyone saying, or a lot of people saying, you know, it's fake, right? As if I didn't connect those dots. But for me, it wasn't about whether it was scripted. Um, for me, it was about the story. It was about the drama. It was about the excitement. It was, being in a live arena with, you know, 20,000 other people when the person you're cheering for, like, beats the person you hate, you know, one, two, three, and the crowd erupts. Like, there's just something so cathartic about that experience um, that just kind of hooked me. Uh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. Okay. So in that year that you spent in school, did you develop a character? Um, somewhat. I don't think I got far enough in to really hone anything you know super intense or extensive uh i had ideas of the kind of wrestler i wanted to be going in and so for those who are familiar with um you know the product of professional wrestling i grew up a big undertaker and kane fan um and you know the brothers of destruction for me were just like it was so it was so cool to see that type of uh, theatricality and intensity and just physical prowess because the undertaker is like seven feet tall and here he is tightrope walking across the top rope and like doing all of these agile things that you're like how can a man of that size who's 300 you know pounds of muscle do such agile things and to me that was just so graceful and so beautiful and like I wanted to be that I am not seven feet or <laughs> 300 pounds of muscle. So by the time I got through or into the wrestling training, I started to realize that like, oh yeah, I'm a six foot, 180 pound stocky frame that, uh, you know, has to think of characters that I'm not an intimidating force in the ring. <laughs> so I have to think of other things. So I started to, you know, try and pay attention to smaller wrestlers, those who, you know, try to use that quickness and agility for their, um, uh, you know, to their advantage. Uh, and that's where their performance came through. So I tried to pick up on some of those details. But in terms of like, really fleshing out a full character, I'd have to say, I never really got to that part, at least that deep into the training. Okay, okay. See, I remember getting really into it in terms of my watching about it around the like, Eddie Guerrero, Rey Mysterio phase of wrestling okay you remember <laughs> no and so that is i remember the one of the first times i went to um a you know a signing uh and actually re realizing that like i was taller than ray mysterio now he was much bigger than me and broader shoulders and like wider as a human being but i remember that was kind of the first moment of like oh ray mysterio as someone who is this this um you know spectacular uh just you know, entirely theatrically heavy, performative and um, 
you know, agile wrestler who could compete in the ring with those seven foot, 300 pound people and make it look easy. I was like, okay, maybe there is somewhere on that spectrum that I fall. Uh, so yeah, he was definitely, you know, a character and a person that I was like, okay, maybe, there, maybe there's room for me here. <laughs> okay. So you also said that you got to meet some of the people that like, who did you like, See, because in my head, I immediately go to like the the big stars, right? Like I'm thinking like Steve Austin, The Rock, you know what I mean? Like John Cena, Kurt Angle, like all the, like who, did you meet any of those people? Well, for those who, again, are somewhat familiar with wrestling um, and know of the, of the, geograph- the geography, I should say, of uh, people where they're from, um, Edge and Christian are two wrestlers who are from the GTA area. They're from the Orangeville area loosely. So they actually trained with my trainer when they were, you know, first starting out decades ago. Um, and so as just that kind of connection between the two of them, whenever WWE would roll into town, they would stop by the school and they would, uh, you know, get in the ring and mix it up a little bit. And so I remember we were doing a set of, um, the move is called a snapmare, but we were doing a, a few moves in the ring. And I happened to be in the ring at the time that Christian walked in. Um, and so for me at that point in my life, I'm 18 years old and I was very much just like a, you know, a lanky scrawny kid. I was an easy practice dummy for a lot of moves. So the trainer would often, you know, I was in there with a lot of bigger guys who were much more in shape than I was at the time. But whenever the trainer was like, I'm going to introduce a new move. He'd be like, Johnson, get over here because it would be, I'm someone who's easily manipulable. Uh, my body so he could just kind of have his way with me and there wasn't much I could do about it so I remember Christian coming in the first time and me having this oh my goodness like there he is he's he's here and then he gets in the ring and he's like oh here let me show you a few ways to do this and I just happened to be the person in the ring at the moment so he snapped near snap mared me and as a move wasn't the end of the world but I was sat there thinking like oh my goodness I'm taking a move from someone that like I've grown up watching tv for you know, for years. Um, and then at other points, we would do kind of local shows with local wrestlers. And so as students of the school, we would be responsible for like setting up the ring and, um, you know, making sure that the wrestlers had things backstage that they needed. Like we were kind of the lackeys of making sure everything kind of checked out. Um, but then once the show was started, we got, you know, free access to kind of just sit and watch and chat with people. And I remember Edge came uh, one time and uh, and he was sitting in the back sta- like back area. And so me and some of the other students got to go up and just chat with him for like 20 minutes. And and it was so different than when you meet someone of that type of celebrity caliber at like a signing where you shake their hands, they sign something, you may get to, you know, say something to them for 10 minutes or 10 minutes, sorry, 10 seconds. <laughs> uh, but in a context like that, where you're just sitting in the back room and he's there because he wants to be and he's just asking questions about how, you know, how long have we been training? And, we're just, and you're actually just having a dialogue. It was, so, it was such just this... Um, you know, profound experience to know that, oh my goodness, I have sat there eating snacks on my couch, watching you be this magnificent, you know, um, spectacle in front of 30,000 people or more week in and week out. And here I am just, you know, kind of shooting it with you, which is, which is such a fascinating, surreal experience, which is, and which is why I never regret doing it. Um, Even though wrestling is no longer anywhere near to the point it was in my life 
especially at that time. Um, I have no regrets about taking that year to try it and do what I love. And, uh, you know, it was a nice thing to figure out it wasn't for me. I'll be honest. I think my parents were relieved that second conversation where I was like, I think I'm ready to go back to school. And they were like, okay, okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That sounds great. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so actually, let's talk about this then, this readiness to go back to school. Like, what did you end up doing? Where did you end up going? Where was your brain at this point? So I think one of the things that factored into um, not just my passion and drive for wrestling, but as I said, I, I never considered myself a very studious person. Um, and, my, and my sister definitely is someone who, you know, intellectually and academically, I looked up to so much because she just, she did so well. And it was the type of, she was the type of students that I'm like, I'd love to be that, but I could just never figure out the right study habits. Um, and I just never connected well with the material or the courses that I took, largely speaking. Like there was always random classes I enjoyed but uh, but high school I was just very much just a run-of-the-mill kind of person and so I remember my speaking with my guidance counselor in grade 12 um, and in order to apply for university you needed like six university or university college level credits and I had five and they were like what do you want to do for your six and I said gym and they were like are are you, are you sure? Cause Jim doesn't qualify you for that. And I said, yeah, like I'm going to go be a wrestler. And so I don't want to take another class. I'm not going to university. So Jim would be the most useful for me to help me, you know, stay in shape and keep me active. Um, and so that was really where my mindset was. So when I knew that wrestling wasn't going to work out, I immediately had this kind of panic of, okay, well, what do I do? Because to me, university was the place that people like my sister went. It wasn't the place where I went. And so I wasn't sure if it was right for me. Um, so I, but I knew I liked being creative. Uh, while, I was, while I was doing the wrestling and kind of the in-between phase, um, I was starting to write a little bit. Uh, and some of the, the media that I was consuming, like TVs and movies, I kind of really took to, um, you know, just, poetry, I liked being creative, and I liked being just kind of, you know, tapping into that vibe. And I think that was kind of a carryover from the wrestling because I got to express this artistic side of myself. Um, but what's so funny is I was never a reader at all through high school. Like if I read stuff for class, that was great. But unless it was, you know, uh, hockey or wrestling related material, I didn't read a thing. And so English really scared me, even though I was like, I like being creative, I like writing. Oh my goodness, the idea of having a reading list like just petrified me. So I had it narrowed down to uh, whether or not going for English was something that I may consider. But I also, strangely enough, had marketing circled. And the reason for this, and this was kind of coming in conversation with my parents, and I was thinking, well, you know, marketing was something that was practical. It meant I could go to college and it also meant I could stay at home. Um, I grew up in a family that, uh, you know, my parents did everything they could to provide for us and, you know, lived entirely happy in that, in that context, but we definitely didn't have a lot of money. Um, my parents couldn't afford to support us in, in school, um, or anything of that nature. So I definitely, you know, had that had to factor into whatever decision I was going to make. Um, they were there with all of the emotional, uh, support that you could ask of parents. Um, but material support was something that I had to, you know, do myself. And so part of it was, well, I could stay at home and I could go to college and I could, you know, pursue marketing. I could exercise that creativity and I could actually find out if post-secondary education is for me. 
and I didn't know if it was. So I initially uh, um, applied for a three-year business marketing diploma, um, and I loved parts of it. I loved a lot of people I got to meet and what it opened, the doors it kind of opened for me, but it really did show me that there were some areas of me intellectually that I felt, I started to grow confidence in, that I was like, oh, I could, the things that I thought would be more difficult weren't. And, and, and that wasn't that um, they were necessarily too easy, but I felt like I could take on a bigger challenge here. Um, and so I was probably about a year and a half of the way through that program. And I was like, this isn't for me entirely, uh, partially because at least in, in the marketing program I took, it felt like every class was kind of the same type of structure where you'd get, you know, this company X wants to do whatever uh, type of marketing program, do a SWOT analysis of their strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, threats. And it just felt like the same type of exercises over and over again. And, and I got very bored. So I opted to drop down from the three year to the two year um, because I figured I'd put that much in, in terms of investment of my time and material resources that I was like, I don't want to leave here with nothing. So I finished out the two year diploma. There was a two year option. So I finished that out. So I had my two year, you know, business marketing diploma, but then I decided I was like, all right, I'm going to give university a shot. Um, I'm going to apply for my English, my BA in English. Uh, and I'm just going to see where it goes. I still was not a very big reader. Um, but I decided to take that leap and, and, and then all of a sudden, here we are. <laughs> oh my God. That's like, that's quite the leap. So, oh my gosh. Okay. I have so many questions. So first and foremost, you said that there were things that you naturally started to grow more confident in as you were working on your diploma. Like what were they specific courses or skill sets that you had? Like, where was this confidence being fostered? Like, how did you end up going and doing your BA in English? <laughs> Well, I think for me, it was, it was a process of helping me realize some of the things that I had forgotten that I was kind of good at. And I think I was underselling myself quite a bit. I definitely lacked in, in self-esteem in a lot of areas. Um, and intellectually is one of them and one of the things that I still struggle with. Um, but I started to see during that, during the time of um, my business marketing kind of journey, um, that math was interesting, but I knew it wasn't for me. So doing, you know, I had to take math of finance courses and just accounting courses just because that's part of the kind of general business program. And it was interesting, but it was also like the cut and dry black and white answers were so less interesting for me as much as it was to talk through things. And I loved the discussion elements of any class or pro, you know, projects that I was a part of. I loved being able to work in the gray area a bit. And I think that's where I found out that I was really comfortable there. I, I didn't necessarily need the security of having like, this is the clear answer, yes or no. I liked the ability to kind of shift, well, what if we did things this way, or we looked at it through this lens? I think I was starting to tap into that part of my, my own psyche. And I also picked up some other things. I remember I had to take an oral presentations class and right from the get-go, you know, the, per, the, the me who in public school won those speech competitions all of a sudden came back out again. And I thrive in that class so much that I was like, okay, I, I, there is something here where I like just talking. So where can I go to a place where I don't have to be so black and white in terms of my approaches, but I can just talk you know, as much as I need to, or as much as I want to about whatever it is we're discussing. And so English for me excited, it were, you know, excited me a lot because I felt like a it allowed me to exercise the creativity side of me that I liked. But I also like the idea of that whole book club thing of like just getting in a room and talking about stuff. 
And because of that extroverted side of my personality, that part didn't scare me. It the part that did scare me about English was largely just the confidence in reading. I hadn't read near as much as a lot of people who I knew would be going into an English program already had read and were prepared to read. So I felt very nervous about being able to step into that and go, like, I'm so behind, A, as a mature student, because at this point I was 23 when I started my undergrad. So I knew immediately that I already was going to be on the back foot in terms of where other people were at, um, and also I knew I was going into kind of trying to test this out. And so there was just some, you know, hangups about that. Oh my gosh. Okay. See, I find this so interesting because I feel like, you know, if I were to generalize the people I know or how I see how people think, I feel like humans are comfortable in the black and white. And to know that you are comfortable sitting in the gray is so interesting. Yeah. I, uh, it's, it's funny. I'm, you know, I did this with my students uh, most recently, but uh, we were working through a close reading exercise in, in our tutorial. And I had, uh, you know, one student, I, you know, we were trying to pick out some keywords and some phrases of uh, a short story. And they, you know, did this phenomenal job of, of creating this really comprehensive interpretation of like, I feel comfortable, like making this sort of argument. And one other person put up their hand and they're like, I actually see this like the entirely opposite way. And then all of a sudden in with different evidence from the text brought out this entirely alternative comprehensive analysis that I was like, I paused the class and I was like, okay, I want you all to sit in this for a moment. Like, what do we make about this? Like here are two almost entirely polar opposite claims, but I think there is plenty of you know, negotiation on both about which one is more persuasive, which one do you lean towards and why? And for me, like that is the area where all of a sudden like the hair, you know, I get my goosebumps, the hair on the back of my neck stands up. Like I get super excited about, you know, the potential that other people can find their way in amongst the mess. They can sit there in that type of, well, I'm not sure exactly how I feel about that. And then they have to do that introspective work of, well, do those key words stand out for me like they do for my friend? Um, and if they don't, why don't they? Why did these other things come up for me? It forces them to ask a lot of questions about themselves, about the material, about the topic maybe of the, of the you know, story or book. Um, and for me, that's just such an exciting part of the human experience is learning how to ask those questions about yourself and your place in the world that I just, I could ride that wave and hopefully could for, you know, the remainder of my <laughs> academic career. But that's for me where like the passion has, has been able to bloom over the course of my, you know, post-secondary studies in university. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, the courses that you're currently TAing, are those the kinds of things? So we were like rewinding now you entered you're entering undergrad yeah were you taking the same kinds of things that you're currently teaching your students what was that journey like yeah somewhat uh so you know the last couple years i have been fortunate enough to ta our english 1020 here at western so um you know it's basically intro to literature and so not just english majors but a lot of people take that as their kind of you know uh arts elective or their their kind of their elective credit to meet that um and especially a lot of science students take that course because 
you know, they require for future med school applications or whatever it is, they need some type of literature or writing course to kind of support their application. So there's a, always a mix of students in those classes and they're there for a range of reasons. And that's for me is part of what also makes it exciting, especially at a bigger institution like Western, is you just get such a breadth of reasons of why people are in that room to begin with. I was fortunate enough for myself, and I'm, and I'm glad for this experience, that I went to a partnership university. So I went to Laurentian is where my undergrad was, but I didn't go to the Sudbury main campus. So as I said, I'm from the Barry area. And at the time, it no longer exists, which is strange to say that I have a degree from a set up institution that no longer is there. Um, but Laurentian had a partnership or an affiliation with Georgian College. So it was a smaller program, but you could take, you know, university classes there and earn your degree there at Georgian College. And, you know, they had professors there and everything. But I learned from a small group of people in the sense of, you know, there was probably four, maybe five core faculty English members. And then the rest were all adjunct or, or you know, part-time contract workers. Uh, so what that meant was my class sizes were smaller than your average undergraduate experience. And so like the biggest class I took in my undergrad through all of those years was intro to anthropology and there was 50 people in it. That was the biggest class I had. Stop. (laughs) Which is such a very different experience than say, like a lot of people I know who may have done their undergrad here at Western and who are in like Psych 1000, which has, you know, how many hundreds, if not thousands of people in it? I think my smallest class in undergrad was 50 people. (laughs) this is this is the exact uh you know for me it worked it worked well because it gave me that sense of camaraderie with a lot of people right from the get-go and i think i needed that i needed to see feel like i was i could be part of a university community i needed to feel like i could be there and be accepted intellectually socially like I, i i and so what i'm thankful for is because the classes were small you made friends with everyone who you were with, regardless of whether or not you became super close friends, but like I knew everyone who I graduated with in English, like by, by my second year, no problem. Um, and I knew my professors on a first name basis and I knew them well. I went to all their office hours. I never had a TA until I was a TA because my classes were so small, like we didn't have TAs at that institution. So I think that prepared me well for graduate school because when I was taking my fourth year seminar courses, they were all with like 15 people in the room. So by the time I went to my master's and was doing a seminar, I remember sitting in that room and there was someone who had done, you know, their BA at a, at a little bit larger institution than I had. And they were petrified of like a seminar space of being in, you know, being in a class with, with only 12 people because, that puts a lot of spotlight on every individual person to contribute. And like, for me, that was my niche. Like this was where I thrived. So, um, you know, there's always pros and cons to having been at a smaller institution. We didn't have quite the um, social atmosphere, the campus culture. Obviously I never lived in residence. There's a lot of things about being at the institution I was that, I missed out on from the kind of more holistic university experience and especially being a mature student as well. I kind of was outside of some of those rings, 
But in other facets, it really allowed me to dig into the material. It allowed me to grow that passion and appreciation for reading, which I never would have thought would have been possible, um, but, but it happened. Uh, and it also prepared me for the type of work I would do in graduate studies that I'll forever be grateful for, um, just because it, it was the space that I needed for someone like myself to come to realize that like, hey, there are things in this world that like you can do that are hard, but that you're still good at. And someone like me needed to know that. Definitely. Before we get into grad school, we're definitely going to talk about that. But I was wondering if you wanted to talk a little bit more about what it was like being a mature student. Because I think, you know, our, for me, my experience was the average, I guess you would call it trajectory, where you finish high school, you go straight to university, and then you finish university, and you go straight into your master's, and then you finish your master's, and you go straight into your PhD. Like, I took that very linear trajectory and I think it's often assumed that most of us do when that's not actually the case. Yeah for me it was um, you know trying to work out the rough chronological order of you know graduating at 18 I did wrestling for a year um, and then there was a little bit of layover between when I stopped that and started at Georgian College for the business marketing um, and then that was a it was a two-year diploma, but it actually took me two and a half years because I had to wait an extra semester for like one class that I couldn't graduate without, but it was only offered during certain semesters. So it was one of those things where I was literally just one class shy of getting the diploma, but I had to pay a whole nother semester, which oh. was its own fun. But it, so that pushed it a little bit. So I was starting the September uh, 2011 when I started, I was 23 years old. And so I, I know I had an idea that there might be others like myself. Um, my mom is a case example that she had actually finished graduating from university the year that I started. So my mom is an example of someone who went back to school very late in life to finish her degree um, and also kind of helped me with the sense of like, okay, there might be other people like this. And there were, there definitely were some older people in my program. Uh, but I was cognizant of, you know, a lot of people are going to be coming here at 18 and 19. And I have never been one to be... Um, you know, the super social bar scene of, of university life, which is why me not being necessarily a part of residence or in a bigger city with like a, you know, a bump in downtown core, that has never exactly been my type of jive anyway. So I didn't feel too bad about missing out that kind of stuff, but I did worry about whether or not people would want to make friends with, you know, the guy that who was five or six years older than them, um, depending on when they were starting. And I was fortunate that one of the things that helped was I actually did my four-year degree in three years because I, I was able to carry some transfer credits from my the fact that I had a diploma um, over into uh, the university and then I just had to pick up a few summer courses so to kind of round out so what happened was that first year was such a smorgasbord of electives and like all the first year classes I needed to take but then the second year um, uh, like my second year, quote unquote, of university was actually meeting up with the third years because I was on their level now in terms of the amount of credits we all had. So I, you know, I had the opportunity to meet a smattering of people during that first year, but I was so focused on getting university right and like that I was actually, you know, I could do the work and I could pay attention. I wasn't very social that first year, um, but 
by the time I was rolling into that first summer and then into my second year, but third year on the degree scale, um, I had met enough people that I started to get roped into more and more things. And then in my, um, that, again, it's, it's so strange that my second year of university, but third year on, on paper, um, I took 10 English courses. Uh, I took five each semester because I was like, I'm just going to dial into this thing and I'm going to give it everything I have. Now, I would, I would never recommend another <laughs> student do this. Um, for me, it was very much, I needed to know like the breadth. I felt like I had to catch up so much that I just took a range of courses um, and that was so much reading, that was so much writing, so many essays that, yeah, I would never encourage. I remember talking with like the department chair for us uh, heading into my fourth year, and I didn't realize there was a cap on your discipline of the amount of courses you could take. And so he said to me, he's like, you know, Jeremy, so you have to take the mandatory ones. There's two mandatory ones in fourth year. Um, but you're not eligible, like you can take other English courses, but you won't get credit for them, like towards the degree. And I was like, oh, <laughs> I didn't realize that there was a ceiling, but apparently I had found it. Um, so yeah, I think uh, once I established my core group of friends and two of my friends, for example, are, I'm still best friends with them today. So we're coming up on near a decade um, of me knowing them. Um, and uh, they were also uh, closer in age. And I think that helped um, to myself. So I think once I found my kind of group, um, the idea that I happened to be a few years older than the rest of them started to fade away and we were all just good friends, so. Oh my gosh, how amazing. This is such a great story. I'm, I'm loving listening to this. Okay, so you're wrapping up undergrad now. You've already mentioned grad school at some point was that just one naturally progressing into the other what happened so a few things happened for me heading into my final year that i think were pretty pivotal in that decision um the first was between my third and fourth year i had the opportunity to study abroad and i was one of those students in high school who saw the students who got to go away for like march break and study in like different parts of the world for like a couple of weeks to like do a partial tourism slash you know do academics while they were there and i was always jealous of all that and i think as i've already alluded to you know, I would just, our family wasn't in a financial position for me to do any of that stuff, which is fine. Um, but when I had the opportunity, when it presented itself uh, between third and fourth year um, uh, of the degree to study abroad in Italy, I was like, I don't care what it costs. I'm funding this myself anyway, and I'm going to take this life experience. So I made the decision to, to do so. Um, and it was, uh, there were two courses. One of them was uh, Renaissance literature and the other was the history of the city. So the program was run by an English professor who I still have a great relationship with and also a history professor who likewise I still have a great relationship with. And uh, the, the studying abroad was for those two courses. So we did a few weeks um, at the school, in, like in person, and then we went to Florence, Italy and were there for a month. So we lived in Florence for a month and Monday to Friday, we went to school um, like 9 a.m. to 12, to around lunchtime. And so we would alternate classes. So like you know, one week, Monday would be the English class, Tuesday would be history, Wednesday, English, so on and so forth. 
Um, but the weekends and from noon onwards, we were free to do whatever we wanted. Sometimes there were some scheduled um, museum things that related to the course content. So the odd days, those would be mixed in. But otherwise, we were left to our own devices. So there was a group of about 20 of us that went. Um, and there was only two guys, me and uh, again, my, room, my roommate, who we're still good friends with. Um, and uh, that was just such a fascinating experience for me for the first time in my life to really step outside of myself. And I remember walking the streets of Florence um, one of the first nights that we were there, walking the cobblestone. Uh, I was by myself, which I'm going to preface all of this. This was probably not a very good idea, but 20, you know, 24 year old me at the time was, um, was it pumped about it? Uh, we had gone out somewhere and then we all came back to the hostel where we were staying and I just wasn't tired. And I was like, I just, I just want to explore a little bit. No one else wanted to. So I went by myself, which, you know, probably not the best to go out past midnight by yourself in a strange city for the first time. But I went uh, and I, I went out walking and it was just breathing in the life, even though it was like 1230 at night, not a lot of people were out. It was just breathing in like the architecture and just like feeling the history of the steps I was walking on and feeling like I was having this such a profound human experience of like sharing in this this culture and all of the things that had happened, the things that we, that I couldn't imagine we'd start to learn about over the next few weeks, but I just felt so enwrapped in a world that I never knew could exist. And I remember just like walking that around and coming back to the hostel and me just being like, this is like, this was transcendent. Like I, I genuinely felt like an out of body sense of, I never want this to end. I want to just chase this feeling, you know, for the rest of my life, whatever that looks like, all of those things. So that was definitely the summer of 2013 was, was for me an indication of like, I got I got to move. Um, Barrie is a relatively small town. And I'd always felt like, um, you know, I wasn't sure how I would fit into that uh, world and going to Florence was a time where I was like, I got to get out of the Barry area. I don't know what it's for, but I need to start seeing the world. I need to start putting myself in new environments. So that was one reason that I thought grad school was appetizing. It gave me an opportunity to continue doing what I enjoyed, but also put me in that new space. Um, and the other was I fell in love, really in love with the study of literature in my fourth year because of a theory and criticism class. So literary theory and criticism is, is such a, um, has such a special place in my heart because the professor that I had was, was phenomenal. The group of people that we had in that class was such a, such a strong, diverse mix of minds. And it really was a space that the lot, you know, for me, Every time I left that class, I always told myself if I didn't have to reconceptualize my thoughts of the world for at least a few hours afterwards, then I wasn't paying attention. Because if I left that class feeling like everything was fine and like the world is just as I thought it was, then clearly I didn't understand the reading. <laughs> so that was such like every week I, you know, it's difficult. Theory is difficult text to engage with. Um, and, and anyone who is, you know, broached certain theorists will tell you it can be the most frustrating experience. But for me, that, that little bit of struggle was like what I clung to. So I, I love trying to sit there and digest like the hardest paragraphs of trying to dig into like, what is this French philosopher trying to say and why does it relate to my life? But, but that journey for me just meant so much. And so I, I did well in that class and I was encouraged by that professor to go, hey, you know, you're, you're picking up this well. What are your thoughts after school? Have you thought about grad school? 
And I think those that those stars were starting to form the constellation of me being like, yeah, maybe grad school is something I could do. Um, you know, as long, if, if I could just keep doing this, then like that could be all right. And I remember him telling not just me, but that whole class that grad school is a place where, especially in a class like that, um, that he said, you're not going to do anything harder than this. You're just going to do more of it and more intensely. But like the material, the things we were reading, he's like, you're not going to read harder, you know, um, works or essays or things than what you're already doing. It's just, you know, the way you approach them will look very different. So I remember that gave me a lot of confidence to feel like, okay, I feel like I've taken to this. I feel, you know, confident enough in myself intellectually. The passion was there. I, I liked doing it. And then the other missing piece, um, aside from like wanting to move, was I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. And I think that's such an important, crucial piece to understand that a lot of people, especially if you're an English major, when you get asked, what do you want to do with your life? The answer is, for most people, I want to teach. And the expect expectation from a lot of people asking that question is, oh, so you want to be a teacher? And I didn't. Um, my sister is a teacher. She does a phenomenal job uh, at being a teacher. And I have so much profound respect for, especially during COVID circumstances, um, all of the high school and primary school educators out there, like just so much love and respect. I, I can't begin, but I knew it wasn't for me. So I was like, well, okay, well, if I'm not going to be a teacher, you know, Devon said, what are you going to do with an English degree? <laughs> does anyone have poetry that needs analyzing? <laughs> um, and so I was like, well, grad school can kind of fill that void in the short term. It can give me something to do, can give me a purpose, and it meets all the other kind of checks, the boxes that I'm looking to check. So those were all uh, the reasons why I applied for grad school in the first place. Okay. So where did you end up? Yeah. So I applied to two MA programs. One, um, creative writing, because I did a fourth year thesis um, and I wrote a short story because as for those who have been listening and picked up the creative thread is I really enjoyed writing. Um, and then I applied to the University of Windsor, which also has a strong creative writing program. Highly recommend anyone who's curious to check it out. Um, but they also have a literature stream. So I applied to both, both of their creative writing programs because I wanted to continue that passion. I didn't get into, uh, I'm trying to think of, University of Guelph was the one I didn't get into. And then Windsor, I didn't get into the creative writing program, but they accepted me for the literature stream. They're like, we really like your application and we really want you to come to be to part of the literature stream. So I was a little bit taken back being like, oh, okay, that's not what I wanted to do. But getting accepted into a master's program, regardless of what it is, is still like a really exciting feeling. And so I felt very you know, grateful and lucky that they still wanted me and felt like there was something in my application that sparked enough interest for, you know, to go. So I thought, okay, I'm going to go for it. So I went to the University of Windsor. It's a two-year program. Um, and I'm so happy that it was a two-year program because I think I needed it to be. That helped me kind of spread out to the fact of I'd only done three years of concentrated undergrad. So I still felt like I had to do a little bit of breadth work and catch up from some people who had four full years of courses. So the fact that the MA program was two years, A, that helped fill the void of I don't know what I'm going to do for the next couple of years, which was fine. Um, at this point at the MA program, the mature student thing was a non-factor because I knew people did their MAs at varying the points of their degree, you know, in their lives. So I was less concerned about meeting um, or all my colleagues being 22 and just out of their undergrad, I thought it would be a little more varied. Uh, but I also got to move from Barrie to Windsor, which is you know, roughly four, four and a half hours away, 
little less depending on how you're driving. Um, <laughs> but uh, so it was, it was far enough away that I really felt like I could pick up and like start a new somewhere that wasn't like 45 or an hour away where I felt a little too close to home. And I know, you know, places like Kitchener, Waterloo or Guelph, or, um, you know, if I'd gone to like Trent or McMaster or something like that, uh, would have been, you know, just far enough away from home, but it still felt like your parents, my parents could just get on the highway and show up whenever they wanted. Windsor was not the case. Windsor was far enough away that I was like, they're not going to get in the car on a random weekend and drive four and a half hours to like pop in. So I was like, I feel like I can get away from, you know, really start anew and dig in roots there. So I, I was really excited about that. So I went to U Windsor, had a wonderful opportunity, got the opportunity to teach there. Um, which is something that a lot of MA students don't get to do. But at the time, they had uh, a strong composition program. And uh, you had the ability to either be a TA or you could sign up to instruct composition, which is basically a first-year writing course. Composition is very big in U.S., schools, um, not so much in Canada, a few institutions do it, but not so much, but it's basically where you learn different writing techniques and genre writing. So I got to teach and I was nervous about that because I remember that first day of standing in front of the class for three hours, like these, you know, these first years are mine for three hours. And I just graduated with my undergrad like three months ago. And I was like, okay, you know, here we go. What do you have? You know, what can, the question of what can I te teach them? at this point, right? Like they're going to, I'm going to feel like they don't have confidence in me as a teacher because it, we're, there's not a lot of separation um, in terms of uh, where I was in their shoes it was not that long ago. So I was nervous about like, what can I really show them? But you forget, and I remind this a lot to a lot of MAs and people who are just starting in grad school, you forget how far you come during undergrad. And I remember the first batch of essays I got from those first years. And I was like, oh, oh, I can teach them. <laughs> there are things I can show them that I forgot that not everyone knows those type of writing skills and traits in their first year. And so for me, that was like a moment of like, oh yes, you have, you have something you can bring to the table. That, that really helped me combat the imposter syndrome, which is what I think I'm talking about. Um, but so, yeah, so I did the MA program and uh, the first year was all coursework. And then the second year was uh, thesis based. So I got to write my thesis, which was literary based, not, not um, uh, creatively, let's so to speak. Um, and I got to dig into a research project for the first time of like that caliber and that size. And so I got to spend eight months as like, that was my only thing aside from, you know, Tiang. That was the only thing I had to focus on. Uh, and that was what that process of ha writing a thesis and doing that type of research work was what triggered for me. Oh, you need to do a PhD. Um, and I know that you're, you know, this might not guarantee you anything after the fact, but I would definitely feel so remiss to not have done a PhD that it was something that I was like, I loved that year so much writing my thesis that I would, that all I wanted to do was more of that. So if someone told me that I could spend four years roughly doing that or, or longer, as he says in his fifth year, um, <laughs> that that for me was so appetizing because I was like, I love doing this. So yes, sign me up, whatever it is. Oh my gosh. Okay. So now you're in your PhD. You're in your fifth year. I'm in my fifth year too. So we're fifth year buddies here. Four years. It doesn't have to be four years, everyone. That's not the ultimate. Please don't ever put pressure on yourself to finish in four years. But um where are we at? Like, are you in that writing stage right now where you're fully able to just immerse yourself in your work? 
Um, yes and no. Uh, and well, I, what I should say is I've come a long way and I almost have a full draft of my dissertation. So I should say that like, yes, that is the case. I am um, in it, so to speak, that like it's there. Uh, I also feel like I have, for a host of reasons, had to um, take on a lot of other opportunities, partly because they really excite me and I love the experience of doing them, partly because financially I need it. Um, and one of the things I have definitely learned about myself, especially through my PhD, but was becoming a parent during my master's, is how much the role, you know, our, the materi our material conditions play in our ability to do things. And so I always tell my partner and my friends that like, you know, if I really just had like a semester where, where I knew I didn't have to worry about the bills that I needed to pay and the things that I needed to take care of on that level, and I could just write, I probably would write the dissertation and have it done in like that period of time. But because there are so many other things that, you know, come into play there about needing to pick up some research gigs, if you can, if the opportunity is there or needing to um, work extracurricular jobs because you need to make up that type of money, but it chews into your nights all of a sudden. And so if you've got other things that take up your day, all of a sudden your ability to find times to write and read, it becomes very difficult. Um, and I, for the longest time, I've been someone who was what I call a snowball writer. It takes me a while to get going during a writing session. So I could, for example, let's say if I were to have a day where I knew I was just going to write today, I'm just writing today from like the time I want to start until I can't do it anymore. Um, I could take like three hours to write that first paragraph. But then in that next three hours, I could write four or five pages. And that for me is like, I, I, it takes the energy of like the buildup. I, I have to like get into the headspace that like I can never just jump in. So when people were like, oh, just carve like an hour or a two hour block in your morning to write if you can do it. That never worked for me because by the time my two hours was up, I was actually just getting to the part where I was ready to write, so to speak. So um, it became difficult for me to like block off sections of time. Um, and so I did this what I would call unhealthy thing of not writing for a long time. And then I wrote 15,000 words in seven days. And my supervisor was like, so, for, so I didn't give her like any material for months and months. And then I told her, I was like, I'm getting close to something. Like I'm reading, I'm getting close. I just need to sit down and do it. And then I just wrote 15,000 words over the course of, I think it was eight days. We'll say eight days. And then I emailed that to her and I was like, I'm so sorry about this because A, that's a lot to just dump on their supervisor in one sitting. But B, I knew it would be a mess and it would take a lot to like parse out what was actually good writing in that. But it was one of those things where I finally found like, you know, the vein, so to speak, that I could open up and just let it all out. But I know that that is not a healthy habit to be in is to not write for six months and then write everything in a week is not good practice. <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay. I have so many questions about writing here because I think writing is something that we all struggle with in some regard or some capacity. And so, okay, first off, can we clarify, like how many pages roughly do you think 15,000 words is? Uh, I'm pretty sure it's like around like the 45 to 50 mark. Oh my God. <laughs> Okay. Okay. That's really casual to just write. Oh my God. Okay. So now are you someone when you get to the page and, you know, after those first couple of hours, you're starting to hit your stride. 
Are you someone that gets caught up in writing the perfect first draft? Or are you someone that can just kind of communicate your stream of consciousness and not worry about it and then get back to it after the fact? Um, I think there's a little of both in the sense of, I think I, while I'm writing, I am super meticulous. Uh, and I also have, I think some undiagnosed learning disabilities that I really do need to go address. But one of the things that for me is I, um, definitely need to review like every sentence because I think much faster than I can write. So what happens is I get the script in my head, but I am so far behind my actual typing that by the time I, I review a paragraph, there's a lot of things that are muddled. I've missed a lot of words, just really like elementary mistakes that, sh that you know, I sh you think someone at this caliber would be able to, you know, wean out of their writing. But for me, it happens still to this day. The last thing I wrote, like I, I have to review everything two, three times just so I know that like, did I say exactly what I meant there? Um, so there's a little bit of that, but I also put a lot of pressure on myself to get that right the perfect first draft so that even while I'm reviewing on a micro scale, I am very, uh, I should say I'm, I'm poor at the macro revisions at first, because as you say, after like, or, um, after writing that much over a period of a week or so, and just having a block, the idea of starting back at the first sentence and then reading it all again is so for me, it's just, Oh, you know what? I'm just going to send it to my supervisor and just assume it's fine. Um, rather than it, I would be well served to actually take a little bit more time and do some micro reviewing after it's all done. But my, my approach to it is I do so much micro reviewing while I'm writing that when I actually finish, it must be fine. And of course it's never fine, <laughs> but uh, that's how, that's probably the honest assessment of myself. Oh my gosh. Okay. Interesting. So now to follow up, I realize we've never actually talked about what you're writing, what you're looking at, what you're researching. So do you want to talk about that a little bit? Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, so the current project that I'm that I'm on is, uh, I'd say, somewhat birthed out of my MA thesis, um, although not wholly entirely. Uh, I found there was when I was in undergrad and figuring out the type of literature that kind of spoke to me, and this was one of the keystone moments for me in terms of understanding and tapping into the passion that I, that was in there, I just needed to find it, was I remember the excitement of the first time I read a book that when I finished, I wanted to read it again. And I didn't know it was possible for someone like myself to have that feeling. So whenever I hear someone say, I'm not a reader, I am always the first to go, I'm not so sure. I just think you haven't found the thing that you are a reader for yet. Um, and my dad is like a perfect case study of this. My dad, you know, for the life of me, will always say that he's not a reader. But if I were to give him any book on a biography of a Toronto Maple Leaf player, he would gobble that up in like a couple of weeks. And so I always laugh being like, oh, okay, no, you're a reader. You're just, <laughs> you just, there's certain things you want to read. You're not a novel reader and that's fine. So I started reading a lot of things that spoke to me. And the first, one of the first books that did this for me was The Perks of Being a Wallflower. Oh, I love um, that book. Okay. Yes. So yes. that book was, I would say, I think I can say confidently was the first book that I read that when I closed it, I was like, I just want to read this again because I want to give Charlie a hug and I love him to death. And he spoke to like an inner person in me that I didn't know was there. 
And so I just started to go, books like the perks of being a wallflower, and I want to read more like this. So then I started reading a lot like that. But what happens is, for those who have read the book, there are a lot of really troubling themes of mental health and death and suicide and a lot of really difficult topics. So I started reading a lot of books about that. And it, what that spurned for me in my master's was, there are a lot of young adult books written for teenagers that are about death and mourning and grief. And, you know, this is, again, we're coming out post like Hunger Games trilogy. We're like, of course, death is like a massive part of that novel, even though it's not really grief is less of a thing that it seems concerned with. It's very much a part of the story. So I started digging into a lot of adolescent literature. And part of that was because I feel like I missed it. I didn't read it all in my teen years. So I was, again, part of my catch up. Uh, was trying to figure out what were things that people that I was in school with had read uh, that I hadn't. And so I started reading a lot of YA, a lot of adolescent literature and about those topics. And it's what well, the reason the research question for me and my master's spoke to me so much was, you know, when we think of adolescents in real life and we think of the life experiences they go through, sometimes it's very easy to look at those experiences as Oh, it seems super intense right now, but wait until you're older, it'll be much different. And love is a perfect example of that. When we, you know, typically think of two teenagers in love and they're professing their love for one another and they come home blissfully and they're like, oh, this person, I'm going to be with them forever. It's easy for adults or parents to look at that and go, oh, that's so cute. And then behind closed doors go, oh, they don't know what real love is, but like, they'll figure it out. But with death, you can't really fake that. <laughs> you can't really pretend it's not a real thing in their life. And you can't pretend that grief isn't experienced, you know, in such an intense way, right? So you can, you could question the validity of the intensity of their love. If someone who's a teenager experiences a friend or family member who's died, especially if it's a parent, a sibling, a best friend, there is no dancing around that. That is a real life experience. It doesn't matter if you're 15 or 85. And so for me, I was concerned with, well, how do stories about this, how do they grapple that? How do they grapple the intensity of like a teenager dealing with death in their life? Because that's such a complex thing to do. So I picked up that thread and that was basically my research question was, how do YA authors write about death in the novels? What is the narrative structure of dealing with grief and death? And so that was my MA project. Now, when I decided, when I applied to my PhD, the PhD programs and opted to come to Western, um, I wanted to pick up a thread from the start by focusing in on the mental health component. So my, my proposal for coming to PhD was, I want to step away from the death part specifically, but a lot of the texts that involve death and grief involve mental health stuff. So I was like, I want to, you know, be a little more nuanced in the breadth of like, not all stories about mental health involve someone dying. So I, I want to like flesh that out some more. So I picked up that thread. I think my proposal was about suicide and mental health. Um, because I thought that that would be a useful bridge, but I wanted to explore the mental health component more. And as I went through the program, as I kind of did more reading, because again, you can ask a research question in your first year, but once you've, you know, really dug into the literature in years one, two, three, then you start to see, oh, there's all these other areas I didn't even know existed that I could really talk about. 
So I finessed and I dropped the kind of death part per se and the suicide part. And I really honed in on mental health. And my supervisor, who I cannot say enough positive things about, um, honestly is one of the most grateful things about my experience here at Western has been my supervisor and the relationship dynamic that we have and how she treats me like a colleague. Um, and just is so encouraging in ways that are just so refreshing. Um, not to be on a side tangent for a moment, but one of the things that that stood out to me and, and is probably a conversation I'll carry with me the rest of my life is uh, I struggle um, with, you know, being authoritative in my writing. I write as if other people have all the other best ideas and I'm just showing them to you. <laughs> um, and so what I'll do or I, what I tend to do is front load a lot of other people's ideas and topics. And then like the last few sentences of a paragraph, I'll be like, oh yeah. And what I think this means is X and I'll just kind of shoehorn it in, but I won't really emphasize it. And so her, one of her early critiques of my writing or feedback is like, you got to take that sentence and you got to open your paragraphs with it because you got to lead with your voice, not theirs. And what she said to me was, I don't know who you think is coming, to tell you you're wrong about your ideas. But my topics are adolescent literature and mental health. And she goes, there might be someone on this campus who knows more about adolescent literature than you do. And there might be someone on this campus who knows more about mental health than you do. But there is no one on this campus who knows more about those two things together, because that's what you're here to do, is to be the expert on that thing. And that to me was like, Oh yeah, I guess there is no, like, that was my mind blown moment. There, there wasn't some secret professor or group of professors that were experts in the exact thing I was writing on who were standing being like, nope, that's not it. That's wrong. Because the whole point of me pursuing that research, you know, track was that other people weren't doing that. That's why I was picking it up. And so once I started to really, you know, I'm still working on believing it, but once I kind of like heard that, that, resound you know left such a um you know resonation with me that that i still feel to this day um so cutting back to the kind of core story of my research part uh she is dual appointed in um english and uh gender studies um so taking a gendered lens to this approach was something that is part of her research background. So I thought, okay, this is useful for me to bring in. So that's where I initially started was mental health in adolescence and gendered approaches to it. So how do we respond to mental health questions when it's a young boy versus a young woman versus someone who might be non-binary um, or someone, uh, a transgender character? Like where are the subtle gender differences in how we discuss mental health? Um, and where that took me in kind of a roundabout way was discussions of gender in class. And the reason for that is, uh, again, alluding to something earlier in my story, I grew up in a family that didn't have a lot of money. And one of the things that I know very well about a lived experience is how much your material reality and your financial material reality plays a role in your life and how much living in a system of capitalism shapes the things we do. And so I immediately started to bring in that thread as well. So my current dissertation as it sits, um, if I were to give you the elevator pitch, is about uh, what I call um, capital distress and productive citizenship. So the reason I call it capital distress is because I link it to the role of capital and capitalism in our life, but it's capital distress because it's capital D distress. Um, mental health in adolescence is a growing public health concern. 
it is one of the biggest health concerns of the 21st century of the amount of mental health and mental distress that adolescents are feeling, largely in North America, but in other parts of the world as well, particularly as it relates to suicide and the increasing numbers of, of teens who are, um, who, you know, are, are uh, committing suicide. So that for me is an important, um, you know, material effect of the world that I'm trying to learn about in a literary sense. And then the other part about productive citizenship is a lot of times in narratives or stories about people who are suffering from health conditions of some kind. Um, they fall into what, you know, certain disability scholars would call cure narratives or narratives where the idea is there is someone who is ailing or, you know, they have an illness and they need to be cured or fixed by the end of the novel. And the, and the novel for me is a useful way of looking at that because in our medical literature, we might tell those sort of stories that, oh, you have an ailment, you go get, you take this prescription or you seek this type of treatment and that will balance you back out. You'll be normal again. And in the narrative, that's what the goal is, is that you've got a character who has some type of thing that they're lacking or something that they're dealing with, a sickness, whatever it is, however it's called. And by the end of the narrative, the goal is to get them normal again. So for me, I started to probe about, well, what does normal look like at the end of these stories? And the, what I've really, you know, um, feel like I've stumbled upon is like, this is the approach I'm taking is normal means productive. And normal means when an adolescent in a novel has um, high anxiety or they might have uh, extreme bouts of depression or they might have be experiencing, you know, um, OCD, whatever it is, the problem or part of the problem that they're navigating is, well, how will this affect my life? How will it affect the way I build relationships? How will it affect my ability to get a job? How will it affect my ability to participate in the world? And that's where I'm starting to unpack the dynamic between, oh, not only do the kind of material conditions shape the distress of certain characters, but also the reason it's a problem is because the world is not so prepared for people who are experiencing those things. We need people not to be depressed so they can be productive in society rather than caring about what it means to have someone who might be experiencing high anxiety and to sit with that. What does it mean to live a life with that? separate from the expectations of having to be a productive member of society. So those are kind of my, you know, uh, I said I was going to kind of finesse that into something shorter, but um, that's where I'll wrap that there. I've said a lot. That's so interesting. So like, I have so many questions and I'm trying to figure out where I want to go. I've also just completely stopped taking notes because I'm like, I just need to sit and listen. <laughs> like, oh my God. Where do I want to go with this? I guess because oftentimes books are written in a time period that speak to cultural conversations that are happening in that time period. And so do you think that your analysis of these books and the messaging that's within them have implications currently for how we view mental health in adolescence, like in real time, real life? I think so. And I think the reason for that is, is for a number of, I think there are a lot of layers to the reasons why, um, but authors, writers, they're the ones who are making sense of the world that they're living in. 
And sometimes that is future oriented, sometimes that is looking historically. And other times it is, it doesn't matter if it's through a genre science fiction lens, but they're making sense of the world and the problems that we're dealing with that humans have dealt with for, for so long. And that is kind of part of the creative process of writing for, for those with the, you know, those talents and skills. So for someone like myself as a researcher, a critic of that work, I'm always, you know, I'm concerned with those questions of like, what are the conditions that they're concerned with right now? And I'll give you an example of just that growth. So a lot of my work starts from post-World War II. The reason for that is because um, adolescent literature as a product is a, you know, a mid 20th century invention. Uh, there weren't really stories for adolescents because they weren't, the adolescent category as a social category is also a product of the 20th century. You know, prior to 1900, you were kind of a kid until you were not a kid and then you were an adult. Um, and a lot of people's adulthood started earlier than others, depending on what life you had. But around, you know, that, that through the 20th century, I should say, and into that mid 20th century, um, we start to get this sense of the adolescents as this social category of people who no longer needed to go work or uh, be on the farm because the developments of industrial revolution had, you know, aided in what the home life had looked like. So now they're in school longer than they ever had been before. Um, so, but they were still at home. And so we have this social category of people who are now in different spots. But then we also get the growth of, um, you know, commercial capitalism as we know it. And those people, that group of people as marketable beings that had money to spend. And so particularly in, um, you know, places like, uh, you know, the UK or in Canada or in the United States, um, you get that post-World War, you know, economic shift where all of a sudden now there are teens who have money to spend. So people are creating things for them. So we get all of a sudden this kind of boom in uh, through the 60s and into the 70s of novels for teenagers to read. And that, that is kind of where the birthplace of the area of literature that I study. So there are some other novels that, you know, obviously predate that. And they're talking about experiences that what we would call adolescence today, but they're not referring to that. Um, and so, and a, you know, a question uh, or a book like, say, The Catcher in the Rye is a novel that a lot of people are probably familiar with or loosely heard of, um, a novel published in, you know, early 1950s, but not written for teenagers, right? That novel was not published for teenagers to read so they could empathize with Holden Caulfield and be like, I know what that's like to be that person who wanders around New York for three days. Like, it's not exactly the case, but it resonated with a comment on the adolescent experience. And I would say, you know, one of those novels that helped contribute to the success of, oh, writers could tell stories about people like that. And not only do people want to read them, but teenagers want to read them. So, you know, that is a novel where I see about the cultural conditions of the day. We are talking about J.D. Salinger, who is the author who was in World War II, who is coming out of the post-World War, like immediate aftermath, and is dealing with, with a lot of grief and anxiety about that experience. Holden Caulfield is an adolescent who is very depressed, who is very concerned about death and death's role. Not to, it's not necessarily a spoiler, but one of the elements of the book is that his younger brother died unexpectedly. And so Holden is dealing with that through the book. The reason I bring that up is because how we deal, how we talk about 
death and grief and his depression has shifted from this story told about Holden to the story told today in, let's say, 2018 in a novel that I would highly recommend to anyone called Dariush the Great is Not Okay. Um, which is written by Adib Karam, uh, who's a U.S. author. And that novel, when you look at the snapshot of how we talk about depression in the difference of those, you know, 70 years or so between publishings is just so vast. And for Holden, it is an inter a deeply internalized thing, which is part of the masculine culture because men are not taught to kind of emphasize their emotions, especially if they're distressed, except for anger. And I'll put the caveat on that. Anger is always fine for men to exhibit and express, but if it's grief, if it's sadness, if it's anything about that, um, you're best to internalize it. And that's what Holden's story is about. And the men in his life are encouraging him to do so. Flash forward those 70 years to today, and you can see the development of how we talk to young boys in the novel, like Darius the Great is not okay. And it's still grappling with ways in which masculine culture is still caught up in trying to hide that. But in that story, both Darius, who is the adolescent, and his father both have depression and both take um, medicine for. They both take prescription drugs. And that is something that is like a bond between them. So there are other layers to that story that complicate what that is, but immediately in that aftermath is that there's no shame per se in that the fact that the father has depression and takes medication. Whereas there is entirely guilt and shame about even just feeling depressed in Catcher in the Rye. So I think that speaks volumes about the growth, our social growth and cultural growth, about the ways we can feel more open about these conversations. We still have a long way to go and the novels deal with that. But I think they are important cultural touch points to go, okay, you know, if a novel like that, which is very successful in terms of publishing wise, um, so much in fact that the sequel just came out this year, um, but it's just like it was, you know, well received by critics, by fans, all of that thing, then a novel about a young boy dealing with depression in such immense ways could be so successful commercially and critically speaks to the fact that there is an appetite culturally for us to talk about young boys talking about their grief. And even though that might not be, um, you know, resonant in all communities, I think it does point to the fact that we're moving in the right direction. And so part of my research question is about how can I help push that conversation forward by highlighting the ways in which um, we've been really fruitful in talking about this. And then some of the ways in which even today's conversation about mental health are still lacking and are still carrying the, um, you know, the baggage of the, the healthy sick and the, you know, the dynamic between healthy is good, sick is bad. So if you are considered ill, then it's a bad thing and you're a bad person and you shouldn't have this. And there are still some of those hangups that exist. Um, and so my part of looking at these novels in the language of the literature is to figure out, um, you know, figure out the underlying uh, implications or messages that these types of novels are uncovering for us and which ones are proving fruitful for us to take with us moving forward and which ones are important that we leave in the past and we don't <laughs> we don't take up those narratives and stories moving forward because they're not helping us um, and they're uh, and at worst they're contributing to uh, the stigmas that are out there about these things definitely okay so speaking about moving forward yeah what are you hoping will happen when you finish? Am I asking like the dreaded question from every holiday celebration? Like, do you feel as though you know where you're going or where you want to go? Um, I think the, the honest answer and the ideal answer is I would love to continue to do this for as long as I can. 
Um, I would love to, I love teaching. Uh, I would love to be able to teach my research at some point in my life to have a class where I could teach others about, um, you know, my field of work in mental health and adolescent literature. Uh, so we'll see if that happens. I have applied to a few postdocs because I am putting myself in position to finish uh, in this fifth year. Um, and I'm encouraged that I'll be able to do so, but I still have a lot of work to do to cross that finish line. Um, but I would love to continue that conversation. That being said, recognizing the reality of our social climate, our, um, you know, the higher education climate, and especially in the humanities, and it's, you know, dwindling representation in terms of just, it doesn't get the same financial support that other departments do, um, both internally to universities and externally from, you know, uh, you know, government support and whatnot, that the departments are not as big as they used to be, and they don't look like they're growing anytime soon. So I don't know how many opportunities there may be. And if that's the case, then I am no stranger to pivoting. Um, I have a history of making quite substantial leaps and bounds, but I feel confident that whatever it is I do next will still be on the educating path. I still will be reading and writing about literature. Uh, I have no desire to give that up and I will find a new way to reach different people. It just might look like a different classroom. And that is kind of the mantra that I'm holding to myself that, when you get to the other side of the PhD kind of bubble of everything and you're, you've stepped outside that higher, academic, you know, higher education circle, if it means that I'm not in a position where I get to do this, um, then that means I'm going to have to create that for myself and create that, uh, you know, that experience and how I can reach and help other people. And I do feel like there's an appetite for that. I just don't know what way it might be yet. Oh, definitely. Okay. So, you know, in all of this time that you've spent pivoting and learning, looking back at where you started and where you were, what you started, what do you think you've learned about yourself in this time? Um, I think one of the biggest things that I have learned that always comes to mind is that I am capable of doing things that I that I might not on the surface have the confidence or um, or feel like I have the ability to do. And that doesn't mean I can do everything. But I think when I look back to me in high school and when I see, you know, people who knew me in high school or my teachers in high school and they find out I'm doing a PhD in English, they're all just like, excuse me, <laughs> because it's so drastically different from the person that I was. Um, I also realized there was a person in there at that point that just didn't know he could do things that I'm doing now. I, and I never found the way to open that door. And so now that I have, um, it's a door that won't be closed. And so the biggest thing I've learned about myself is that if something comes up in my life, um, whatever the challenge is, whatever the, the thing is that I may do, give myself a little bit more credit to the idea that like, you know, you can probably do this or, or at the very least, you can give it a really good shot because um, the amount of things that I have been fortunate enough to be able to do would have been unimaginable to the me even 10 years ago when I was starting my you know, university education. Um, and that is something that I'll just, I'll always be grateful for, even if I'm never in academic circles again, once I'm done this, um, that I will always just have such, you know, a profound thankful and gratitude for my experiences through this entire endeavor of higher, you know, university um, is it opened a piece of me, both in my heart and my mind, 
that I'm capable of doing cool things and I'm smart enough to do those things. And if I find the right ways to connect the dots, um, I'm capable of amazing things. And uh, I think that's something that everyone, I hope, gets the opportunity to feel. Definitely. Oh, for me, that was just like a beautiful, like, just tying up the perfect little bow on this present. This has been Humans of Grad School. You can listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else you listen to podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter at Humans of GS or Instagram at Humans of GS Podcast. If you want to get in touch, email humans of grad school podcast at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you.